everyone, and thank you for listening to Piano Whisperer. On this podcast, we'll be exploring the surprisingly vast world of pianos and pianists. So please join us as we interview all kinds of interesting and talented people, as well as provide behind-the-scenes encounters with all things piano. And now, with our host and savvy piano guide, Ben Klinger. Hello, and thank you very much for listening to Piano Whisperer. I'm so excited today to have with us Dr. Steven Lagerberg, who is credited with solving the mysterious death of great composer and pianist Frederick Chopin. I'm going to read Dr. Lagerberg's somewhat extensive bio, but in looking at it, I found it all worthwhile to read. So here we go. A lifelong admirer of the music of Frederick Chopin, Dr. Steven Lagerberg, a Seattle physician and medical educator, became intensely interested in one unexplained factor of the famous Polish composer's life, the disease that caused Chopin's 20 years of declining health and his premature death at the age of 39. In 2008, a prominent Polish scientist made the startling claim that Chopin suffered from cystic fibrosis and not the tuberculosis assumed by most of his many biographers. And to prove his point, this scientist proposed to undertake a DNA study of the actual preserved heart of Frederick Chopin, a relic that currently resides in the Holy Cross Church in Warsaw, Poland. Rather hastily, and to Dr. Lagerberg's regret, the Polish government refused this scientist's request. After years of painstaking research, Dr. Lagerberg decided to write a book about the subject. Published in 2011, Chopin's Heart, The Quest to Identify the Mysterious Illness of the World's Most Beloved Composer, goes through the many details of Chopin's interesting life, examines the various disease possibilities and concludes with a final assessment and a call for an international study to determine as accurately as possible the actual cause of Chopin's suffering. Dr. Lagerberg's passion for the subject and his persistent public campaign for further investigation helped pave the way for the clandestine opening of the crypt containing Chopin's heart in 2014 and its revelatory conclusion that confirmed Dr. Lagerberg's presumptive diagnosis. Along the way, Dr. Lagerberg in 2001 founded a successful Northwest chapter of the Chopin Foundation of the United States, started what now has become the largest piano competition in the Northwest, the Chopin Festival, and has facilitated many young pianists as they aspire a professional career by arranging concert appearances at the famous Salle Carteau in Paris. He also has written another book about Chopin, which I personally love, Essays on Chopin, exploring further the feature of Chopin's music and finally completing the fascinating story of Chopin's heart. Dr. Steven Lagerberg, welcome. I'm really excited for you to join us. Thank you, Ben. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me to join you. It's my pleasure. I was I was really psyched when you when you accepted. So we'll get to the point. So why this quest? What precipitated you to do this? And and tell me everything you think is worth knowing. I was going to a meeting of Chopin scholars in the middle of France at Nouant, the location of George Sand's ancestral home where she and Chopin spent seven summers. I was on the train and I, on my iPhone, I picked up an article that came out of the Times of India newspaper indicating that there was a prominent Polish scientist, Wojciech Chiha, who had proposed that Chopin died from cystic fibrosis and that he was going to prove it by going after the preserved heart in the Holy Cross Church in Warsaw, Poland to get a DNA analysis. 
paralysis. Well, I wound up at the convention and I was surrounded by all kinds of people who were very knowledgeable about all things Chopin, but I quickly realized that their scientific knowledge was lacking on this subject and they really didn't know how to quite approach it. I felt that I was in this unique position of being able to know something about science and the historical Chopin and that I was in a position to be able to pursue this. And so I took up the challenge and decided then and there that I would pursue it and see where it took me. <laughs> and and you had a lot of conversations along the way. You met an awful lot of very interesting people and so forth. So just give us a, a snippet of, of what that looked like, because ultimately you caused this clandestine operation that that was able to access the heart. So tell us about that process. Well, I quickly became cognizant of the fact that many of the people in Poland, especially the authorities in the government, the Institute of Frederick Chopin, were very much opposed to any access to the heart by any scientist, Polish or otherwise, that that object in that container in the pillar of that church was sacrosanct to these people. I was surprised by that. But I pursued it, and along the way, you know, meeting people, the president of Poland, the minister of culture, the Warsaw archbishop, some of the family members of Chopin, the people at the Institute of the Frederick Chopin, the scientists of Poland, and some in France. Man, it was a, a long journey with a lot of people, very interesting along the way, but uh, there was a lot of resistance to allowing access to this object, and ultimately, it was never granted. So what ultimately did lead, though, to a change in the mind of going about this? Well, for one thing, I nagged them. I wrote letters. I wrote emails. I called them up. I met with them. I met with countless people repeatedly attempting to persuade them that this was a scientific quest, and this in no way would reduce the legendary status of this famous Polish composer. And in fact, it might only increase his fame and his notoriety if people actually knew that he was able to compose these wonderful masterpieces, despite having this terrible chronic illness. Right. And that was one of the motivators for you to go about this as well, right? Yes. I felt that if people with any number of uh, chronic diseases uh, would realize that here was this little sick man who was able to do these things despite his chronic illness, that they might feel somewhat reinforced by that. Yeah. And you mentioned actually that Chopin never knew his disease by name and it was mysterious to him. H how was he treated during this time when he was suffering? <laughs> well, there, there wasn't really any treatment per se, but there were a lot of types of things that were applied to him. His doctors were puzzled by, by his symptoms. They couldn't really make it out. The stethoscope had been invented in Paris in 1816, and it was in use by his physicians, but they, it really didn't help his physicians to diagnose him. He was treated by some of the best people. Fortunately, he avoided the typical allopathic care of the time, which was bleeding and leeches and blistering. And he wound up with a naturopathic physician who gave him a nice diet, heavy with cream, fresh air, and a little bit of opium drops on the side. That's not homeopathic medicine, but it worked well for him in suppressing his cough and relieving his pain. And after his death, you said in your book, the essays book, you said a sculptor had created a mold of Chopin's hand and that that was actually helpful in creating clues about his death. Can you elaborate on that? 
Well, the hand is still around. People can see it. I've got a plaster cast of it myself. It's a very beautiful hand. It's a very normal hand, very delicate. And those who have cystic fibrosis usually, but not always, usually, maybe 85 to 90 percent of the time, have an unusual bulbous swelling of the tips of their fingers called clubbing. And that was not evident at the time he was living, nor was it evident in that plaster cast. Wow, that's really interesting. And you also, along the way, discovered some lost records, uh, his autopsy, if I remember correctly, and so forth. Can you tell us about that? There was an autopsy of sorts following his death. Some hours after his death, his body was opened, his chest was opened by a Dr. Jean-Baptiste Cruvier. And Dr. Crivier was a leading pathologic anatomist at the University of Paris. He was the doctor to the royal family in France. He was a famous guy and well experienced. He opened the heart. He jotted down notes that was essentially the autopsy. And these notes were located in the Hotel de Ville of Paris. Unfortunately, in 1870, during the Commune, that building was burned down. And so most of those records were lost. I did come across some fragments indicating that he said the heart was more involved than the lungs and that he had never seen such an illness in his life. Well, here is this very prominent scientist who had spent his whole career studying pathologic anatomy. In fact, his textbooks are in medical schools around the world to this day. And he had never seen this illness. And that really picked my appetite for going after this. Yeah. Now, you said you came across these notes. What does that mean? (laughs) They were in a record. They were fragmentary. They were just pieces of sentences that were put together. And then there was a correspondence between him and Chopin's oldest sister, Ludwika, in letters between them in which he spelled out some of these same conclusions. And I was able to find them in books of Chopin's letters. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, let's talk about Chopin, the man, the person, the composer, You said something really interesting. You said that his illness may have caused him to be greater than he otherwise would have been. Did I get that right? And can you talk about that? Well, that's possible, I suppose. I'm not sure that conclusion is entirely accurate. But yeah, I think he may have realized that his life was not going to be long. He witnessed the death of his youngest sister, Amelia, when she was 14. He was 19. She died of a hemorrhage on their kitchen floor in front of his eyes, and for the rest of his life, he thought that his life would be rather short. He knew he had these musical gifts, and so he went at it. He just went at it with all his heart and soul, his passion for it, and never looked back. Now, interestingly, too, I didn't know this, but you mentioned that Chopin was self-taught, that he didn't even really listen that much to others. His first teacher was a violinist, a gypsy violinist who really didn't know how to play the piano. He's a skilled musician. He knew Bach and Beethoven and many of the preceding composers of the of the day. And he recognized the genius in this little boy who was six years old at the time. But he wasn't a pianist. By that time, Chopin had figured out the fingering on the piano himself, which was an unusual fingering method. And so, yes, he although he had some teachers for a while, probably a total of five years in his life, he was largely self-taught. He's a super gifted, one of these supernatural gifted people. (laughs) Well, 
he wasn't so much gifted in other aspects of life. You know, it was, he was gifted in, in musical affairs, like many other so-called geniuses. They have a genius, have a capacity for some particular aspect of life, but not life in the broad terms. And early in his life, Chopin dreamed of dazzling audiences with his fancy finger work. Yet you mentioned that later in his life, he sort of shunned the concert stage and even found the very idea of public concerts unpleasant. So what happened to cause that shift? His performance style involved playing at a very low audible level. He just didn't have the strength or maybe he didn't have the desire to play to the end to the back of the audience. And frequently at these charity concerts that he and Liszt would give in Paris, he couldn't be heard in the back rows. And when he went to Vienna and tried to make his start in the world in Vienna, he got some unfavorable reviews because people couldn't hear him. His music was more turned inward. He really wasn't out there to flash the crowd and to appreciate it, although he did admire the recognition that he got when he was young for his appealing to audiences. He really didn't prefer that. His music was turned inward. That's where his audience was. So he he also then turned to teaching primarily to make his, his living. And can you describe him as a teacher? You mentioned that he, he enjoyed teaching. He very much enjoyed teaching, and he spent most all of his days doing that from about 9 o'clock in the morning until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He charged an exorbitant fee for his lessons that were about an hour. They sometimes ran over. But from what his students have said, and they've written about this, and there, in fact, there's a book out there that talked about his students, 75 or seven of them, I guess, that he was a very committed teacher, although many of the students themselves weren't as committed as he wanted them to be. So for the most part, they were daughters of aristocrats who took up the piano largely because of what their friends and their family wanted them to do, and it wasn't out of a direct passion for the piano. He had a few uh, students who were superb, but most of them were not. Despite that, he still gave it his all. Yeah. And one interesting thing that you said about his personality and his character was that he personified what it meant to be Polish, yet he was on a prolonged self-imposed exile from Poland. Can you talk about that just a little bit? I found that interesting. He had a marvelous, marvelous childhood in Poland. It was a very happy time. He was uh, feted around the country. He was recognized for his musical gifts. He was a delightful boy. He was funny. He was witty. And then he had to leave because friends, family, and his teachers said, you know, if you're going to make something of yourself with this musical gift, you're going to have to go someplace, to Vienna, to London, to Paris. Warsaw was not a cultural backwater at the time, but it wasn't a place for a young man to shine in that particular arena. And so he left very reluctantly. And then after he left, Poland, which had been occupied by the Russians, the uprising against the Russians was crushed. And he thought for sure his parents, his family, his friends had all been killed. He felt terribly guilty for not being there. And for the rest of his life, he decided that he would wipe away the pain of the present by looking at the memories of the past and to try to bring them back. And so that's what his life was all about, bringing back those wonderful memories of Poland. Yeah, you can hear the longing in his music. He's inconsolable in a way. That's really interesting. I appreciate knowing that. And there's a quote that you shared that we'll wrap it up with this. It's an anonymous quote. A flower does not think of competing with the flower next to it. It just blooms. I thought that was beautiful, and I thought it was indicative of him. I thought it personified everything that you wrote 
about him. Took that to be a lesson for my own life. So is there anything else that you would like to add to your commentary here? I would just suggest that people explore Chopin's music on many different levels. It can be enjoyed, obviously, superficially for just the brilliance of it. It can also be enjoyed at many other levels that can go deeply into our souls. And it, in fact, can influence our lives a bit. I would highly recommend that to your listeners. Will do. And I want to thank the listeners for tuning in and listening to this podcast with Dr. Steven Lagerberg. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I'm just so grateful. And if you have questions for us, you can reach us at pianowhisperer.org. Again, tune in soon. There will be more coming. And thank you again, Dr. Lagerberg, for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure, Ben. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you've been inspired to go deeper in your piano journey. To learn more about our podcast, please visit pianowhisper.org. Please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast.